Open your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. Several months ago, as the staff uh, had been dialoguing about this life together emphasis, this this calling for God's people to re-examine their view of the church, I decided that the missions conference theme needed to follow suit. So this morning, I want us to examine the church and her mission. So you follow along as I read Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There are several passages found in uh, God's Word that are known as Great Commission passages. The most famous of them is found in Matthew chapter 28. But there's one found in Luke 24. There's one in John 20. And then there's this one here in Acts chapter 1. One of the things that we find in all of these texts is that the author is, is recording some of the final words that Jesus gives to his apostles before he ascends into heaven and returns to earth. So so from a literary standpoint, because they are Jesus' final words, the author is communicating to us that these words hold significance. They hold great importance for the church. Now, Before we really dig in and understand this mission that Jesus has given to his people, I want to draw your attention to a question that the apostles posed to Jesus. And I want to do that because I believe this question that they pose gives us some insight into a tension that exists in the mind of the apostles. And it is a tension that I believe you and I hold and can relate to. Look with me, if you will, at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, the question is not a wrong question. It's not a bad question. I, I really look in this and understand what you have is a child asking a father for some understanding and, and for some information. That's not wrong. Um, as a matter of fact, that's really pretty typical. And, and the apostles, this really was not the first time they had been, been asking this sort of question. See, there was a tension that existed in the, uh, in the apostles. And this tension was between the good and the best. The apostles were rightly expecting God's kingdom to invade the earth. They longed for it. 
They desired that God's righteous rule would once again return to the nation of Israel and bring Israel back to the place that God had had Israel under David's rule. That was a good thing. They wrongly limited their understanding to a political kingdom. They desired something good. God's righteous rule. But they were not focused upon the best. The best being a completion of God's plan of redemption. Where he is going to take people unto himself from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. You and I have the benefit of of revelation. And we see that picture, or at least a part of that picture, where God, before his throne, has gathered together people that are worshiping him from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Now, you and I experience this tension between the good and the best, just like the apostles. We desire to live obediently and to experience God's blessing and His peace in our lives. We want our children to grow up, and we have these these images of these wonderful family gatherings where everyone's getting along and it's full of harmony and joy. Certainly, a good thing. But we are instructed to pursue the best, participating with God as He fulfills His plan of redemption by saving a people made up of every tribe and tongue and nation. Now, the good is not in contradiction to the best. Rather, it's a matter of priorities. Back in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is is speaking to his disciples and to a crowd. And and he's he's dealing with the reality of life, that we need food and shelter and clothing. And, And he makes this statement in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You see we've got to make sure that we are pursuing the best, the mission that Jesus gave us, and not prioritizing the good. And we have to be careful because at times the pursuit of the good can even become a distraction from the best. So this morning, allow me to draw your attention to verse 8, where Jesus articulates the mission that he has established for the church. Look with me at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus, our Lord, states a mission that he has for the apostles, for the church. It is the best So let us be obedient and let us pursue the best. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is draw your attention to four aspects of this mission so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives. Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that the best, the mission from Jesus, it includes you. 
Look back here at verse 8, and you'll see that we find a pronoun used three different times. You, you, you. And for every pronoun, there's an antecedent. And we find the antecedent back in verse 2. Notice what it says there in verse 2. To the apostles whom he had chosen. So, specifically, verse 8 is given to the apostles. The you there, and it's plural, it's a plural you, it's given to all the apostles. So, we have to ask ourselves, does this mean that verse 8 is only for the apostles? Well, the answer is no. And I think you know that, but let me, let me explain. The mission given to the apostles is transferred to those following the apostles. Now, the apostles were a unique group of men. There are no more apostles today. They were chosen by Jesus. They were, they were the ones who codified his teaching. Uh, they're the ones who either wrote or the person who wrote were writing down what they had been teaching and gathering together. So there are no more apostles today, but the responsibilities given to the apostles are carried out by God's people, by the church, throughout history and even today. Uh, You know, Jesus tells in verse 8, he tells them that they are going to be his witnesses in numerous different places, even to the end of the earth. Well, does that mean that when the, the apostles died that the end of the earth had been reached? Well, no, of course not. Uh, In the Great Commission text in Matthew chapter 28, uh, there is a phrase. Again, it's, it's written to the apostles. There's a you there. And there's a phrase that we all love and we all apply to ourselves. It's this. I am with you always to the end of the age. We all love that promise. We, we, we know that that means it's, it's for us because we want Jesus with us. We want him alongside us. Well, the same is true here. Verse 8, specifically written to the apostles, is also written to you. So this you here is you. You have been assigned a task. You have been assigned a mission. You are responsible, every one of you who has been brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, you have a mission that Jesus articulates in verse 8. So let me ask a question. Do you... Do you take this this text and the other Great Commission texts, do you take it and does it prioritize things in your life? Another way to ask that question is, do you own this mission? Do you see it as something that you are responsible for? Or have you allowed a thought process to come into your head where That's somebody else's responsibility. Oh, look, there's a paid pastor. He's responsible for that. Oh, look, here's someone who is a missionary. They're responsible for that. My brother and sister in Christ, God's word has said you own this mission. One of the things that I observe in life is that all of us want to be a part of something that is 
grand and great and significant. I know no other plan or mission or event or organization in life than the church and the mission that Jesus has given her. And you own that mission. So, firstly, you are included in the mission that Jesus gives to the church. But secondly, the best, the mission that Jesus has given the church, it involves verbal proclamation. Again, go back to verse 8 and look at what he tells us we are to be about. He says, you will be my witnesses. Now, witness here in the Greek is the term martyres. It's where we get our English word martyr from. Now, we all understand a martyr is someone who has died for their faith. Well, that word, that Greek word, came to mean someone who dies for their faith because of the persecution that occurred to early believers. But this word actually means one who speaks, one who testifies, one who tells about what they have seen. And so the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are witnesses to just that. And they are the ones who are speaking, who are testifying to anyone who will hear who Jesus is. God in the flesh. What Jesus' death accomplishes full and complete forgiveness. And then his resurrection that provides hope of eternal life. Now we also are ones who are to testify. We are to be one who speaks. We are assigned the mission to verbally proclaim Christ and him crucified as the only way for humanity to be made right with God. Throughout the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, in my opinion, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is really an outline for the book of Acts. For what you find throughout the book of Acts is exactly what's being instructed there happening. The apostles, um, Peter, John, you find some deacons, Stephen, you find a man named Philip. You find all these people, and as they're moving around and going to different places, the one thing they are consistently doing is verbally proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. They are being witnesses. They are being martyres. So what we can understand from that is that the primary mission of the church is a mission of verbal proclamation. Now, the church, you, are certainly involved in many different things in life. We are involved in many different social issues, and that is a good thing. From poverty to sex trafficking, defense of the unborn, domestic abuse, justice issues, education genocide, natural disasters, you find Christians throughout the history of the church engaging themselves in various social issues. 
But we have to be very careful here. Because for any organization, for any group of people, there is the reality of mission drift that can occur. The primary mission of the church is the verbal proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. And so we certainly engage in any number of social issues, but we do that in order to gain a hearing for what we are to testify about. Christ and Him crucified. And forgiveness by His shed blood. You know, you you really see the same thing happening in Paul's life. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 and 23, listen to what Paul says. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Do you see there, Paul, Paul has his priorities right. Paul understands that the primary mission of the church is verbal proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. But he also understands, I'm going to become all things to all men. I'm going to try and draw a crowd any way I can. If there's a man who needs bread, let me give him a piece of bread so I can earn the right to tell him about the living bread. My brother and sister in Christ, if we allow any social issue to become primary, we have lost our mission. We have drifted from what our Lord Jesus Christ has told us we are to do. And the reality is, mission drift will occur. We must vigorously maintain ourselves on our mission. We must Make sure that all that the church is about primarily is verbal proclamation while at the same time caring for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed so that we can verbally proclaim Christ and Him crucified. All right, thirdly, the best, Jesus' mission, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, look back in verse 8, and we see Jesus saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we find this, this powerful, unique manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. It's called Pentecost. Tongues of fire stood above their heads, and the, all the apostles were able to speak in a language that was not their native tongue, a foreign language that they did not know, they had not learned. And God did this, one, to demonstrate who they were and give them authority, but also because gathered there in, in Jerusalem were Jews from many different lands who spoke many different languages, and they heard the verbal proclamation of Christ in their own tongue you actually find two other similar manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit. One in Acts chapter 8. Here is where some of the first Samaritans came to trust in Christ. And then in Acts chapter 10, Gentiles. The same thing occurred to them. God is communicating that His gospel, salvation through Christ, is not just for Jews, but it is for Jews and Gentiles. So He's given... He's giving that concrete 
communication to his people, that his gospel is for all. So this initial empowerment by the Holy Spirit, it really had a unique manifestation to it. But for all Christians, at new birth, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 and verse 16, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. For all those who are trusting in Christ and are alive spiritually, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now what I'd like to do is draw to your attention two specific manifestations of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. It may not be the same unique one that we find at Pentecost, but the Holy Spirit dwells within you and He has empowered us as we are carrying out His mission, the verbal proclamation of Christ. If you're in the book of Acts, turn over a page or so and look at Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have been out verbally proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, and the leaders of the Jewish nation have, um, have detained them, and they've been hassling them. And we find an interesting statement in uh, verse 13. Now, this is the Jewish leaders. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. My brother and sister in Christ, that boldness that that the Jewish leaders saw in these common uneducated men, that is a manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. A boldness to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. My brother and sister in Christ, that same Spirit dwells within you. And we ought not be surprised when the Spirit manifests Himself in us and enables us with a boldness and a confidence to share what Christ has done for us. But a second uh, aspect of this empowerment by the Holy Spirit is spiritual gifts. The Scripture talks about that in several places. It talks about there being a variety of gifts. And oftentimes in the Scriptures, when, when spiritual gifts are spoken about, the church, the body of Christ is referenced there. All believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and all believers have been gifted with some manifestation of the Spirit that allows them to function within the body and meet a need that the body has. Let me, let me try and illustrate this for you. You know, and, and here's a side note. So oftentimes we think of missions as being some external or arm of the church. No, the church is on mission. Every single Sunday that we have service here, We are verbally proclaiming Christ. We are engaged missionally. Last Sunday, uh, we had communion. Dr. Young uh, referenced a text where he basically explained to us that as we are taking this sacrament, we are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. Did you know that there are volunteers within this body of Christ that they get here early on a Sunday... And right back here behind me, they take all those little cups and they fill them with grape juice and they prepare the bread and they make sure the table is all ready. Now, directly, 
It is the voice of the church that is proclaiming Christ. But do you not realize that when you are exercising your spiritual gifts, when you are serving as a part of the body, you are allowing the verbal proclamation of Christ to take place. Those volunteers serving behind the scenes, nobody probably even thinks about, are engaged in verbal proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. My brother and my sister in Christ, are you exercising your spiritual gifts? The Holy Spirit has empowered you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Are you using your spiritual gifts in some way, shape, or form around this church? Maybe you're involved in an MIT, a ministry initiative team. There's 28 of them now around this church. There's so many of them, I can't keep my mind wrapped around everything that's, do, that, that's going on and happening. Praise God, and may he raise up 20 more. There's, there's a senior high youth department and a junior high youth department. As a matter of fact, they're going on a fourth and fifth grade retreat soon. My children are out of that now. I don't have to keep uh, uh, up to date when those dates are, you know. But soon, and there are volunteers, there are people exercising their spiritual gifts so that our children can hear the gospel, so that we can be witnesses to our own children. All around this church, you see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit manifesting in spiritual gifts and it functioning so that we as a church can be about the verbal proclamation. Now let me even make another application. If you're still in Acts chapter 4, back to that same story. Peter and John, they, the uh, Jewish leaders have seen this boldness in them. And they're kind of, they're astonished by it because these are uneducated common men. Well, they're, they're, they're released um, and they go back to the uh, church, to the other believers, and they tell them what's happened, and they, they begin praying. And I want you to look at Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Look at what the believers pray for in the early church. Acts chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. My brother and sister in Christ, you know, part of the role of a pastor is we wrestle with the text so that we can come and bring you. I was challenged in the last few weeks. And I have changed my prayer life. I have begun praying for boldness. And I call you like these early believers Notice, they're certainly saying, God, be aware of their threats. Look upon their threats. But then they say, but give us boldness. May God grant us boldness in the face of a culture that tries to marginalize us and tries to take the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and push Him into the mud. May we stand up regardless of the threats and may we with boldness verbally proclaim Christ and Him crucified. Lastly, the best, Jesus' mission requires, no, it demands a worldwide perspective. Again, look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. In Matthew, in the Great Commission there, he uses the phrase, of all nations. The point is simply that our mission of testifying to the redemption provided through Jesus Christ is to happen everywhere. We do not have the luxury of being isolationists. One of the things you find in the book of Acts is that there is this pattern that occurs. Someone goes somewhere and verbally proclaims the gospel. The Holy Spirit moves them and regenerates them and they they exercise faith in Christ. And then a church is formed and leadership is established and somebody else goes to another place and they verbally proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And the Holy Spirit moves in their lives, shows them their sins, opens their eyes, brings them to faith in Christ, and another church is established. All throughout the book of Acts, you see this pattern again and again and again. And it is someone going somewhere, the Holy Spirit regenerating lost men and women, a church being formed, and that church then continues the ongoing process right there in their neighborhood, in their city, of verbally proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. There was a a very freeing biblical thought that actually I learned from John Piper. He didn't tell me personally, but through his ministry. Uh, Let me quickly tell you about it. You've probably heard this before, but it's, it's, it's fascinating, in my opinion. In Romans chapter 15, Paul references that he's been doing gospel work, and he says from Jerusalem all the way around to what we know as northern Italy. So he identifies this large geographical region where he's been proclaiming Christ. Uh, and he, he makes a statement that I have fulfilled my, the, the gospel work there. And then a few verses later, he says, I no longer have any room to work in these regions. Now, he does not mean that every single person he's had a chance to speak to and tell them about Christ. What he does mean is that I've gone throughout all these regions and there is now a church in all of these regions and that church is continuing to carry on the verbal proclamation, the mission that Jesus has given us. And so now I'm looking for a new frontier. God raises up some people to be focused upon a frontier, but he also establishes others that stay where they are. All own the mission from Jesus, the verbal proclamation. But it may not be that all of us go. Uh, put, put my first slide up there, if you, will, if you will. This is a statistical graph of the center of Christianity from Jesus' time until now. If you notice, if you follow the line, it's changed. The center of Christianity has changed. Why? Because God's people have been obedient to the mission that God has given them. And it will continue to change because God will continue to raise up those who have a frontier mindset and they go where the gospel has not been yet. Now, let me, let me make application here. One of the things that, that happens oftentimes when you have the title mission pastor is people come up to you and, and they ask you this question. Why are we going over there when there's so much need here? And I understand that question. And I actually look for it. I long for it because it gives me a chance to engage with people and communicate some things and dialogue with them. But we go over there, bottom line, because we've been commanded to go over there. 
But I also understand that that question identifies the complexity of our world today. My, my role here at Grace Evangelical Church is to be an expert upon missions. And it is complex. It is, there are so many places and globalization and technology and it's hard to get your mind around where we ought to go and what we ought to do and why should we go there and should we be engaged here? I am grateful, and I hope you know this, that there is a committee. It's known as the Grace Venture Strategy Committee. It's made up of 12 lay people, two elders, and two staff. And that committee is constantly engaged with this complex thing we know as missions today. Trying to decide where ought we be engaged? Where ought we get involved financially? Where should we send our people? And I hope that you'll trust and understand that that group exists and be praying for wisdom because it is complex. In closing, I want to simply tell you about a man I met a few months ago. Throw that next slide up there if you will. Back in May, I was in Ghana, Africa, uh, investigating a potential partnership that we may, uh, we may make. But I met a man, this man right here. His name is Johnson Asare. Uh, Johnson is a businessman. That's his wife next to him. I was so excited and thrilled to meet Johnson. Johnson owns a conference center, the Radak Memorial Conference Center. He owns a hotel and meeting rooms. And um, I'm quoting him. He told me, he said, Jonathan, this conference center is my cash cow. And he gave me a piece of paper that lists 30 other ministries that this cash cow supports. Now, Johnson lives in Tamale. Tamale is the most northern city of Ghana. It's majority Muslim. Johnson is from the south, which is majority Christian. Johnson moved 25 years ago to Tamale. Why? Because there were Muslims there. And he understood that he has a mission to verbally proclaim Christ and him crucified. Johnson's a businessman. And you can see he owns this mission. And it prioritizes how he views every aspect of his life. His business is prioritized. His finances are prioritized by the mission that Jesus has given him. In closing, my hope, my prayer, is that God may grant us obedience to this mission he has given us. And that this congregation known as Grace Evangelical Church will continue to invest our lives, every aspect of our lives, in seeing the gospel verbally proclaimed with boldness right here in Memphis, every neighborhood of Memphis, in our state, in our nation, and throughout the world. Father, we thank you that you, you allow us the privilege to participate in your kingdom building. I hope and I beg that you will continue to be pleased with Grace Evangelical Church, that you will, you, you will continue to, to help us to be prioritized in the verbal proclamation of Christ and Him crucified, so that more and more and more men, women, and children will come to saving faith in Him. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.